Um, it's been my honor uh, over the last uh, year to get to know Drew Melton. And Drew is a professor here at PBA. He and his wife moved here from Cambridge. Um, that's a really smart school, I think. Um, uh, and uh, his wife has a PhD. She was the one up here, Brittany, doing the confession earlier. And Drew has his uh, divinity degree from Wheaton, and then he got a master's in philosophy from Cambridge. And um, over the last uh, semester, uh, Drew's been leading a group at his house, uh, he and his wife, called Pass the Pulpit. And one of the things that, if you stick around here long enough at Providencia, that you'll know about uh, one of our desires and one of our hopes is that the fringes of society become the center. Um, that is very much what God's kingdom is about, that the fringes of society become the center of our community and of his kingdom. And essentially what Drew uh, and his group were doing on uh, Wednesday nights uh, past the pulpit, that they were listening to minority voices from around uh, the world and listening to sermons outside of our context and our tradition uh, to expand uh, not only their hearts but their minds. Uh, into God's kingdom, into thinking and imagining more uh, in his kingdom instead of just our narrow traditions sometimes that we get stuck in. So I love, I love uh, Drew as a friend. I appreciate so much his trajectory as far as where he wants to lead us as a church that we would become more and more conscious as a community of all the voices on the fringes. So would you give this man a warm welcome as he comes and preaches for us tonight? Thanks, Keith. Danny, I almost just picked it up, wherever Danny is. He told me to move this table without picking it up because sometimes the top comes off and I nearly just picked it up. So wherever Danny is, thanks for that reminder. Um, our reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 12. It's verses 1 to 3. Uh, and I'm going to be reading from the New International Version, which will also be uh, on the screens if you'd like to follow along. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This, scene, this ends the reading of the Word of the Lord. Uh, thanks very much, Keith, for the introduction. Uh, my name is Drew. Uh, my wife, Brittany, and I uh, have been members here at Providencia for a couple of months now, um, and I've just come on board the staff team very recently, um, which has been uh, a privilege and an honor, and it's really good to be with you tonight. Um, this month, we're focusing on uh, the mission of the church. Uh, we're talking about being rooted in mission and how we look toward uh, fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given us. Um, and tonight, I want to sort of talk about this passage in Genesis chapter 12, uh, and we're going to walk through it and see a couple of things from the passage, but I also want to sort of interweave into that some of my own story. And so we're going to kind of go back and forth between looking at the scripture and me telling a little bit of my own story. Um, and part of that is so that you get to know me a little bit better because 
there are a lot of you I don't know, um, but also because I think part of my story, I, I really resonate with this passage um, and with the idea that we see at the end of verse 3 in that reading that Abraham's call is to be a blessing to all people on earth. So there are two times of crisis and transition that stand out for me in my own story. And it's no small coincidence that both of these crises, both of these transitions, center around the city of Cambridge. The second and more recent transition was my family's move from Cambridge to West Palm Beach last July. But that story is for another time. Tonight I want to tell you a part of my story that happened uh, when I was 16 years old and it happened in Cambridge. Um, and this involves a version of Drew that I'm fairly certain none of you would want to be friends with. But maybe that's just a common feature of our 16-year-old selves. Anyway, I grew up in Oklahoma, which is one of about half a dozen places that makes a claim of being the buckle of the Bible Belt. And my dad is a pastor of a large church in Oklahoma City. And as I look back on my childhood, I, steadily re I have steadily realized that I grew up in a very well-constructed and well-guarded bubble. One that was so well-constructed that I'm fairly certain there were intentional and unintentional methods used to prevent me from recognizing it as a bubble. So think Jim Carrey in The Truman Show, if that movie's not too old for you. I was in college before I ever met a Democrat, a Presbyterian, or an atheist. Never mind a Jew, or a Muslim, or a Buddhist. My earliest experience with other religions came when I was 16 years old, and my parents, either consciously or unconsciously, poked a hole in the bubble. They agreed to let me go on a three-week study abroad program in Cambridge, England. For high schoolers. I was interested in religion and theology, and so one of the things I elected to do on this three-week course was to take a world religion seminar that was taught by a University of Cambridge professor. And the professor examined each religion methodically and dispassionately, offering points of comparison where it was helpful, but mostly just letting each religion stand on its own, quite apart from their relationships to one another. And it was in this context that I had my first real crisis of faith. My first exposure to different ways of seeing the world, of discerning what is true. My first exposure to competing notions of what is good. And that crisis marked a big transition for me in my own journey, an eye-opening experience that in hindsight shaped the degrees that I've pursued and the jobs I've worked over the last 15 years. Genesis 12, verse 1, also marks a big transition in the story of the Bible. See, in Genesis 1 to 11, we start out with this giant cosmic scope of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is everything. But here in Genesis 12, verse 1, we shrink down our focus onto something that is very geographically specific. This is one man's family in one place in the world. We go from a vision of all of, humanity, all of humanity to this single person and a single family. And we go from reading a story of creation to the story of a single people that began with a single person. This guy we call Abraham. 
Now, there's a certain beautiful groundedness, an understandable particularity that limits our perspective in a helpful way. Because I think if the whole Bible had maintained the cosmic scope of Genesis 1 to 11, it would have been overwhelming for anyone to have read, centuries past or now. But the particularity of this story of Abraham has always bothered me, too, especially as I've learned more and more about the world. Why did God choose this man? Why this family? Is this just a retroactive explanation from Israelites about why Israel is special? And how are we supposed to interpret such an obviously biased account? In terms of contemporary world religions, there are three major faiths, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, that all trace their origins to this man, Abraham. So is this just one story among three or more about Abraham and the people who are his descendants? And how is this story different from any other story? If we're willing to follow this story about Abraham, to begin here in Genesis 12, and follow the biblical story through the family of Jacob, who will be given the name Israel, and we follow it on to David, King David, the quintessential king of Israel, and eventually follow it through Mary and the birth of Jesus, we're confronted with a narrative that seems to leave no room for other narratives. We're confronted with verses like Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Moses says to the people of Israel, I set before you today life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, that you and your children might live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Or if we fast forward into the Gospels, we get verses like John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then the early church reaffirms it. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to humankind by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. And then finally, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And in case that wasn't encompassing everything, he mentions thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Exclusive and particular and totalizing claims like this make us uneasy. At least they make me uneasy. And Christianity is a faith filled with these kinds of all-encompassing claims. This is a reality we cannot explain away. But I wanted to explain it away. At the end of those three weeks that I spent abroad in Cambridge, I was supposed to write an essay for this class, this seminar, articulating what I believed or didn't believe about God and religion. The night before the essay was due, I was sitting in a tiny room in one of the Cambridge colleges. You can ask Brittany or Jordan or anyone who spent time in the UK. All the private rooms in all the buildings, in all the universities, in all of the UK are tiny rooms. I was sitting and staring at a blank piece of paper. 
These were the days before laptops. Again, this is going to go over some people's heads, but I was going to write this essay on a piece of paper. But I couldn't think what to write because I couldn't think what I believe. I could have regurgitated some of the talking points and even Bible verses that I would memorized inside the bubble, but now I was sitting outside the bubble sitting a long way away from the bubble, and that bubble world looked so strange. It no longer made as much sense as it once had. Now, I'm the kind of person who needs things to make sense. I'm the kind of person who never grew out of that four-year-old phase that my son is in of asking why to everything. I'm also the kind of person who does things well. I always got good grades. I always tested well on standardized tests. I always got the affirmation of being a good boy from friends and family and strangers. So sitting alone in that room with the weight of uncertainty and confusion crashing down on me and staring at a blank piece of paper that had to be handed in the next day, like it or not, it all became too much to bear. It's like it reminds me of the lyric in Jason Isbell's song, Last of My Kind. Mama says God won't give you too much to bear. It might be true in Arkansas, but I'm a long, long way from there. I could substitute Arkansas for Oklahoma. But in that moment, I began to cry, and I don't really know how long I kept crying. It might have been 10 minutes, it might have been an hour. But then, and this is going to go over some heads as well, I picked up the little Nokia brick phone that I had brought along with me for the trip. This is 15 years ago now. And I used the last few minutes left on the phone. Yes, these are the days where you prepaid for minutes on a cell phone. And I called my parents, the only people I could think to call. And what happened next, I'm not really sure The memory becomes really fuzzy after that phone call. When we were moving to West Palm Beach last year, I found a bunch of old schoolwork, a bunch of old essays in a box that we were going through. And in that box was the essay that I ended up writing on that night, on lined notebook paper and everything. As is the case with looking back at pretty much anything that we've ever written, and particularly things we wrote when we were 16 years old, it was ridiculous in my mind. But it did help me fill in a few of these gaps in my memory. Reading what I eventually wrote that night, what I imagine happened was this. I think that my dad calmed me down, at least from that fit of crying, however long it lasted. And I think that what he talked me through was some of those same talking points and Bible verses that I had learned and memorized. Because that's pretty much what ended up on the page. I don't fault my dad for this at all. Quite the opposite, actually. To bring a 16-year-old who's a long way from home and in a bit of a panic to any sort of moment of calm and clarity is no small feat. But as a podcaster I've listened to named Dan Koch likes to say, I think sometimes I've been given bad, good answers. Sorry, let me back up. I've been given bad answers 
to good questions by people with the best intentions. I think that's what my dad was in that moment. In that moment, I had a sense of calm and a little bit of clarity. The panic was over, but I didn't have peace. I was still restless because the answers and explanations that I'd previously staked my beliefs on no longer felt sure. I think sometimes, for me, and perhaps you've experienced this too, I think there's a temptation to take the little bit of calm and clarity and settle for it. To stop asking questions. Because the narrative starts to work in our favor. Because the story of the Bible continues on from Genesis 12, to follow Abraham's family through his son Isaac, and through Isaac's son Jacob, who is given the name Israel, it can be tempting for us to leave this origin story in Genesis 12, this first calling, this first choosing of Abraham, it can be tempting to leave it with an answer that is circular in logic and unhelpful in practice. Abraham was chosen because his lineage would one day include Jesus. That's a simple enough answer. But it can be unhelpful. Now, I want to be clear. The fact that Jesus is a descendant of Israel who descended from Abraham, that fact is crucially important. I'm not trying to dismiss that at all. But what I am saying is that we sometimes jump to Jesus for an answer to a question that already has an answer right here in the Old Testament text. See, this huge transition in the book of Genesis and in the whole biblical story only seems to narrow. It only seems to focus on one man and one family and one people. Instead... What I believe we have here in Genesis 12 is a function of storytelling that is simply using a different lens to carry on the story of Genesis 1 to 11. But it makes the same theological point. See, Genesis 1 to 11, it seems to me, is a story that's meant to articulate humanity's place in the whole of creation. It answers questions like, why did God create humans? What is humanity's purpose? How is humanity distinct from animals, plants, water, land, etc.? And because Genesis 1 to 11 articulates humanity's place in creation, it provides a framework for Israel to understand its place in creation. Now, Genesis 12, verse 1 is theologically doing the exact same thing. Yes, God is calling Abraham in order to set him apart, in order to set his family apart, so that Israel will be a people called by the name of God, called by Yahweh's name. It's a special calling, and it is specific and exclusive, and a number of the other uncomfortable words for us postmoderns. But alongside this special and specific calling, is language that articulates Israel's relationship to the rest of humanity. To the rest of the nations and the peoples on the earth. The end of verse 2 says, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. 
And then the end of verse 3, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham's calling was not for himself. We are so steeped in our American individualism that this can often be our first thought. Good for Abraham, he got chosen by God. What about the rest of us? But no, Abraham's call is for the whole world, for all people. In fact, Abraham is called, Israel is set apart on behalf of the nations, for the benefit of the nations. Yes, Abraham's name would be made great. But for what purpose? For the purpose of blessing everyone else. The theological scope of the biblical story has not narrowed at all in Genesis 12. It's still just as inclusive of all humanity and all the world as in the beginning God created. Now, I've talked before in confession about a married biblical scholar couple. I have a special affinity for married biblical scholar couples. Named Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmott. In their book on Paul's letter to the Colossians, they talk about this amazing inclusivity and worldwide scope of God's plan to redeem and renew everything. And they talk about it as one of the defining features of the Christian faith. And here is their point. They recognize that Christianity includes these specific, exclusive, totalizing, all-encompassing claims. But they're quick to point out that every belief system includes these kinds of claims. From all the world religions, to atheism, to economic belief systems like socialism and capitalism, to societal belief systems like materialism or minimalism, to national belief systems like America First. All these belief systems, what Walsh and Kiesmatt call empires, are competing for our imaginations and our loyalties. They're all competing for our understanding of truth and justice and love. But here's the pivotal point. Because any one of these totalizing, mutually exclusive systems can be and has been used to exclude anyone deemed other by those who have power within the system. Any of these systems can be used to oppress and marginalize and silence. Because in the name of exclusivity and purity and us versus them, we human beings erect walls. It's what we do. Those who bear the name Christian have been a clear example of this. The message and the name of Jesus has been used throughout the centuries to enact genocide, to wage war against Muslims, to promote and perpetuate racism and racist systems, to instill misogyny in generation after generation, to strip land and resources and dignity from nations within our borders and without. But here is what Walsh and Kiesmott have to say about this problem, and it is a problem. They say the rooting of the biblical story in God's overarching creational intent delegitimates any narrow partisan use of that story. It is precisely the creation-wide intent 
of Israel's God that functions as a counter-ideological, anti-totalizing dimension of the biblical story. If this story has the redemption of all of creation as its focus, then any violent, ideological, self-justifying ownership of the story, even by sectarian and self-righteous Christians, brings the story to a dramatic dead end and misses the creational redemptive point. In other words, anyone who uses the Bible to push their own agenda that causes trauma or violence or oppression or death to be visited on fellow humans, that person has failed to live out the story of the Bible by failing to understand the universal scope of the story. I can't speak for all belief systems. I'm not an expert in Islam or Judaism or atheism or American history. But what I can speak for is that I have found in the biblical story a narrative that has built into it this radical and amazing inclusivity. And that living into that story means two things. First, this inclusive scope ought to motivate me to serve others. To see others flourish. To work for the good of my family and my community and my nation and my world. Not because they are mine. Just like Abraham's call, this isn't meant to be about me. God calls us for the benefit of others on behalf of others. Because I am a Christian, I ought to be the first person to use whatever power and influence I have to lift up those around me who are powerless, who are oppressed, who are beat down, who are overlooked, who are marginalized, who are lonely. Because I am a Christian, I ought to love my neighbor. Because I'm a Christian, my neighbor is you. And the man standing on the corner by the highway. And the person who makes my coffee at subculture. And the Guatemalan family who lives next door. And the student in my class who's an atheist. And the people gunned down in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. And a mosque in New Zealand. And a church in South Carolina. And two days ago at Virginia Beach. And my neighbor is the one who held the gun. Because I am a Christian, I share a hope of a new city where every people, every nation, every language knows blessing and peace. This is a small way of understanding the radical, inclusive scope of God's plan that is enacted here in Abraham's call. This universal scope ought to motivate us to work on behalf of others. But secondly, this universal scope ought to guard against misinterpretation, misapplication, distortion, partisanship, and exclusionary uses of the biblical story. In other words, we can know that our interpretation or application of Scripture is wrong if it is being used to oppress marginalize, or exploit anyone or anything. 
Walsh and Kiesmott call this a resource contained within the biblical story that itself undermines any distortion of the story that would lead to this kind of violence or oppression. But too often the biblical story, and more specifically, our self-centered and self-serving distortions of the biblical story have been used for violence. This weekend marked the 98th anniversary of the Tulsa Massacre. Happened on what is known as Black Wall Street. Tulsa is one of the largest cities in my home state, Oklahoma. Shout out to Allison. Oklahoma did not become a state until 1907. And white settlers didn't pour into the territory until the 1880s. So in many ways... The place, the geography of Oklahoma escaped the horrors and the animus and the division of the Civil War. In the early 1900s, black people began carving out their own piece of Oklahoma, a portion of Tulsa called Greenwood, where black-owned businesses and black-owned banks and black-led churches were thriving. And this part of Tulsa earned the nickname Black Wall Street. But as has happened so many times in American history, the white population of Tulsa saw this as a threat. On May 31, 1921, a mob of white people who would have invariably identified themselves as Christians descended on Greenwood and besieged it for two days, setting fire to the entire neighborhood killing 300 people, leaving nearly 10,000 homeless, and destroying a way of life that would never return to Tulsa. This, of course, is an extreme example of our distortions of Christianity. But it serves as a sobering reminder of a legacy of distortion. And it serves as a stern warning about the possibility of it happening again. If we want to faithfully live into God's vision for humanity that includes this original call of Abraham, if we want to be a part of seeing God's blessing visited on all people, then we have to take seriously the inclusivity of this call. And it should both motivate us to work for the flourishing of all people, and it should preclude any use of our calling to exclude or oppress or exploit. That moment of crisis and transition in Cambridge laid the groundwork for so many things that have happened in my story over the last 15 years. Because of that moment, I always felt drawn back to Cambridge, and Brittany and I would eventually move there in 2012. But most of all, that moment was the start of a journey of asking questions, of asking questions without fearing the answers, of asking questions and not being afraid when there were no answers. I hardly ever feel calm or clarity of mind anymore. I constantly feel the tension of the beautiful heavenly vision of every people and nation unified in worship of God, and it is always in tension with the broken reality of the world. 
torn apart by forces of racism and sexism and nationalism and oppression and exploitation and lust for power. Rapper Sho Baraka says it like this, Praise Jesus, I was blind, but now I see. My problem is I think I see too many things. But in this tension I have found peace. A motivating peace that pushes me toward that heavenly vision and a peace that repels those evil forces. Let's pray.